It's not published yet. I'm um, self-confident enough to say we are the first uh, who made it. I mean, the, the field of metal organic frameworks uh, really uh, pushed uh, this topic. Make something that no one else can make. Welcome to the 18th episode of Apple Finch Pudding, your gateway into the world of science. Today's scientist is Andrea Schneemann, a postdoctoral researcher in inorganic chemistry at the Technical University of Dresden. Andrea's groundbreaking work focuses on the development and fundamental understanding of covalent organic framework-based 2D materials. That's quite a mouthful and something we have to talk more about, but this research has uh, resulted in multiple high-impact papers for Andreas. So welcome, Andreas, and thank you for being here. Thank you for the uh, kind invitation, uh, John. My first question is always the same. Do you have some kind of fun fact or a science joke or something for our listeners? M many um, research efforts are related to energy conversion, energy storage. The fact is that the internet will consume in 2030 more energy than the whole of humanity did in 2011. So I think this is something to really think about because we, we are moving a lot of stuff online, but servers, connections, they all cost energy. So we really need to think about energy storage, energy um, production and energy conversion. Wow, that's insane. So in 2030, only the internet will use more yeah. energy than the whole humanity in 2011. Yep. This, at least I read that. Um, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I heard that that's all, also something like because of because we're streaming a lot and that actually takes a lot of energy because those servers need, need to run. And purely based on energy consumption, it's actually beneficial to have something downloaded compared to streaming. Hmm. Yeah, particularly if you use it multiple times. Uh, yeah. yeah, like if you're watching or listening the same thing over and over again on YouTube or something. Yeah, so, so people should download the podcast and, and uh, record it on a cassette. Um, or yeah. burn it on <laughs> <laughs> as long as they listen, it's fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay, we'll start with the basics. So you work in inorganic chemistry. What is inorganic chemistry and how would you compare that to organic chemistry? Inorganic chemistry is the chemistry of uh, yeah all the elements from the um, periodic table. Um, you're trying to build new uh, compounds, materials by uh, connecting atoms. In the organic chemistry, you focus uh, mostly on the uh, elements that you have in, yeah, in nature, the, like the, the carbon, the hydrogen, the nitrogen, the, the oxygen, the sulfur, phosphorus, like only a few elements that, that can form large complicated structures. And yeah, we are looking at the rest of the um, periodic table, but yeah, I'm in the department of inorganic chemistry, but in inorganic chemistry, you also need to look uh, a lot into ligands and uh, molecules that can coordinate to your um, inorganic uh, compounds. So we also do quite a, a bit of organic synthesis, organic chemistry to yeah connect linkers or ligands to um, inorganic uh, elements. So I'm I'm stuck in the middle, but more towards the inorganic side, I would say. So organic chemistry focuses on the carbon and hydrogen and everything that we see in living organisms. Inorganic components, so all the other elements of the uh, table of elements. But you're actually working 
in between. So you use both of it. Yeah, I mean, you you introduced my research topic. Um, I work on covalent organic frameworks. So um, it already says uh, has the word organic in it. So we are building larger structures that contain inorganic moieties, which are connected through organic moieties. And also a short correction, I'm not a um, postdoctoral researcher. Actually, I have my own small research group. So I'm a junior research group leader. So I have currently two PhD students that work in my lab and one master student. And I also take care of some of the students of my mentor. Okay. So, so you're actually, you have your own lab. So yeah, I, I have, I'm not a professor yet. So in Germany, the system is a bit different than compared to like the US or to yeah many other countries. So you do your postdoc and then you uh, go to a university, then you do something called a habilitation. I don't know if you have that in, in Belgium. I'm actually writing another book, another thesis based on the results of my students and my own work that I do in the lab. And I have to hand it in. I have to defend it. Um, you do that after roughly five, six years. And then I can uh, become a professor at that point. So it's actually like an additional degree after your PhD. Kind of like that. So it's, uh, I mean, there are many concurring systems right now in, in Germany. So there's also junior professors. Those are then uh, directly after your postdoc, you become a junior professor. And uh, there's also now tenure tracks, but the more classical way, which I'm pursuing is the habilitation. And yeah, I, I think I, if you compare it, it's like an assistant professor in the, in the international system. So, I mean, I, I have my own little lab, my small group. I work on my own projects. I help out in teaching. I, you need to get to find your own funding as well. Yeah, exactly. So I'm currently uh, self-funded. So I have two projects. Um, in Germany, there's a very good uh, um, funding landscape and also for young scientists. So I was very lucky to um, to obtain some funding. And now we are working on the projects that I got funded for. Yeah. Now we're going to dive a little into your topic. And also, again, starting with the basics, you're talking about covalent organic frameworks. Um, what what are those? What are covalent organic frameworks? So essentially, I, I mean, you can uh, imagine what a framework is. A uh, framework is a regular periodic crystalline structure. So where you have uh, repeating units that uh, expands through through a 3D space. And um, in a covalent organic framework, you have um, yeah, linker molecules, which are highly symmetric like triangular shaped or, or square shaped, and they are connected through a um, second linker. And then you build up a, a structure, porous, regular structure. So they are co covalent. How does that differ from other connections, like have ionic or hydrogen bonds? The covalent organic frameworks community is very closely related to the metal organic framework uh, community. So this is a research topic that started uh, in the in the early to mid 90s and is now a really big research field. I, I used to work in this field during my PhD studies. So there you have um, yeah, highly symmetric metal clusters or metal ions, um, which are then connected through linear or tritopic, tetratopic linkers to build up a 
also a pore structure. And in covalent organic frameworks, you remove the coordination bond that you have in the metal organic framework and replace it by a covalent bond. Do you have some background in chemistry? So you are a plant physiologist, if I... Yeah, yeah, uh, that's true. I have some basic, but let's try to explain it as simple as, as possible so most people can follow. So like maybe just a covalent bond. How would you explain that? Yeah, covalent bond is a bond where both partners have similar electronegativities. In an ionic bond, you have a very different um, electronegativities. So electrons are essentially shared between the two partners of the bond. So that you, if you go back to the first uh, semester chemistry, you are filling your octet um, with the um, with the electrons of the partner, and um, yeah, then you have a quite strong uh, bond. So an electronegativity is like more or less how strong the atom is pulling at the electrons. Yeah, and exactly. in this case, both are pulling equally, so they are sharing the electron. Yeah, exactly. These covalent bonds are mostly found in the first period in the periodic table. The boron, carbon, nitrogen, oxygen. Um, maybe the most famous bond in this regard is the imine bond. So this is a bond that many people use. What bond? Uh, uh, imine. Imine. Ah, okay. I so don't know you, it. So if you have an aldehyde, uh, you know what ah, an aldehyde okay. yeah, is? Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you have an aldehyde, which is um, reacting with an amino group. So the NH2, you do a condensation reaction, and then you um, you are linking the nitrogen from the amine via a double bond to the, C, uh, to the carbon atom that was connected to the oxygen of the aldehyde, and you form water and have a condensation reaction, and then you have this imine uh, bridge. So this can be used to uh, link organic molecules together into a framework. Yeah, yeah. so we're talking about organic chemistry right now. Yes. Yeah, and so you have these covalent bonds, and those produce uh, structures, you said, uh, that mm -hmm. also are repeating structures. Is it yes. like, so that's a polymer? Some people uh, call it a polymer. Um, it's it is kind of a polymer so there there's a huge uh how to say controversially led discussions um because essentially it's a yeah polymer in 2d so some people call also covalent organic frameworks 2d polymers it's a kind of an interlinked uh, interlinked fields um there are different schools of thoughts so in a 2d polymer there are some definitions that say you have the um, crystallization of the components first, and then you form the bonds between them. So you, you're arranging your components, then you form the bonds. In a covalent organic framework, you are um, doing the polymerization and the crystallization in one step. So the interesting thing uh, that yeah, many people look at is when you build these structures, you're creating some voids between the molecules because you're building a network of larger molecules and in between the molecules, you, you have some free space. And people want to use this pore space to do actual chemistry in it. Okay, so it's like, to put it roughly, like some kind of fishing net that you're creating. So it's it's a porous mm -hmm. structure. Mm -hmm. um, and what can we use it for? Why are you making those structures? So there are different, also also different uh, ideas. So 
I mean, you do these uh, synthesis usually in, uh, yeah, in, in, in wet chemically. So you 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 put your starting materials into an ampule. You you get your your burner, your hydrogen burner, uh, hydrogen oxygen burner. Get a super hot flame, seal the ampule, put it in the oven for a couple of days, and then you get your structure. Um, you still have the solvent inside the pores, and you, then you try to remove it by different means. And uh, yeah, basically, then you have uh, nothing, so to say, in the pores, or then of course air or whatever uh, gas you expose it to. And this can be very interesting, for example, for gas storage. That in, in the beginning of the research field, uh, gas storage, hydrogen storage, because you have an extremely light material, it only consists of um, light elements. And then you can fill the, the, uh, the pores with any kind of uh, gas molecule. For example, in the beginning, hydrogen storage, very big topic. Like as a energy carrier, uh, hydrogen is very interesting for for the future because it's uh, light. It has a very high energy density, and in porous structures, you can store a lot of hydrogen uh, compared to um, yeah, just having it in a gas tank uh, with, without applying too much pressure. So this was in in the beginning um, a big uh, research area, but it kind of faded away. Nowadays, I would say um, um, energy storage is um, one of the yeah biggest uh, applications here because if you imagine your framework, your your fissure net, so to say, and you have certain functional group that can interact with ions, then you can use them as um, yeah as ion hosts and batteries or supercapacitors for energy storage. This is something we are looking into. Um, you can use it for filtrations. Like if you have your net structure, one molecule goes through um, easier, the other um, not as easy, then, then you can make a, um, make a membrane out of it, for example, and um, yeah, get, get some purified gases from it. When you say we use it to catch or to store gases, mm -hmm. um, do you imagine it like the fishing net is a balloon that is being filled or are the the gas elements sticking to the surface? Yeah, this is, uh, yeah, sorry, it's classical adsorption. So you are um, sticking the the gas molecules to the to the inner surface of the material. So you, yes, you can so it's get a some, sticky net. It's kind of a sticky, it de always depends, of course, on the functional groups that are on your linker molecules. How can they interact with gas molecules? Do they have some preferential interactions with certain gases? Can you differentiate between uh, certain gases? And yeah, I mean, the, the field of metal organic frameworks uh, really uh, pushed uh, this topic. Like previously, the covalent organic frameworks, they have been investigated now since since roughly 2005. That's at least when the the term was coined, so it's a relatively new um, research field. I can also imagine that you have a lot of different chemicals, like you also said, that you can include in those nets. How does that affect the structure and its functionality? Like, what chemicals do you use in your research? So um, now we come again uh, to the point uh, you introduced me as an inorganic chemist. So we try to make the links uh, between the um, the organic structures 
inorganic uh, moieties. So, so, so you're connecting yeah. inorganic and organic structures. That's what you say. Yes, exactly. Covalently. So um, if you if you remember, I explained the metal organic frameworks. There you have the coordinative bond. So it's it's a more polar bond um, compared to the covalent bond, uh, where you have the metals inside the um, yeah inside the bridges between the uh, the organic parts and uh, in the, in in our case we want to have covalent inorganic moieties which are then bridged through the organic moieties. So we'll forget I introduced you as an inorganic chemist. I'll I'll you're just a chemist. I introduced you as a chemist <laughs> right now. Uh, okay, so you're you're using both those structures and you're connecting them. In my head, that's a bit unusual because like. I often, that's maybe because of how I studied it or whatever, but I always see like you have inorganic chemists at organic chemists, and now you're actually linking those two uh, structures. Is that something that you find in nature as well, or is it purely man-made? If we look back at the origins, uh, I think the uh, the terms were coined, um, the organic and the inorganic chemistry, like a couple of hundred years, two, three hundred years ago, uh, when uh, it was thought that inorganic materials cannot be made by living organisms and the other way around that they are strictly separated from each other but i i think you find some some hybrid structures definitely in in nature so i'm a few hundred years backdated in my head but that's yeah yeah no (laughs) so you have to consider the um, coordination chemistry is a really big uh, field where you have organic molecules coordinating to metals Simple examples would be like acetate as a um, the anion of the uh, acetic acid, which can coordinate, let's say, to, to simple metals. Or um, maybe an even better example would be um, kidney stones. I think those consist of oxalic acid and calcium, um, and you form them in your body. I hope I'm not not, not talking nonsense, but there are some, there are quite some examples where you um, where you have like simple organic molecules forming coordination bonds in nature to inorganic um, moieties. And you say like, maybe that's not, that's less relevant now, but it it has been used to look at the storage of uh, hydrogen for uh, energy usage. Now that's not being done anymore, or is it still ongoing? So um, I'm pretty sure it's still ongoing. It's... It's very difficult to store hydrogen. I mean, it's the uh, smallest. Um, it's quite smallest, explosive. Smallest atom. Ah, well, it's not explosive if there's no oxygen around. So uh, you need uh, all the uh, also, also um, yeah. You got me there. And if there <laughs> and if there's no flame, of course. Uh, I mean, yeah. hydrogen still burns, but uh, needs something to burn with. So the the most promising approaches. So they're also like in 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 my postdoc, I worked on hydrogen storage are currently um, carbon-lined tanks where you put high pressures of hydrogen. Um, I mean, it's the same issue with, uh, like with the electric uh, vehicles. How often you have someone tell you, um, I'm not getting an electric vehicle. What if I need to drive 600 kilometers? Um, I have to charge in the middle. That's annoying me. I've heard that a few times. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) And with hydrogen, it's the same issue. If you want to go to, um, yeah, to private transport sector, you need to store a lot of hydrogen. So you need four liters, sorry, four kilograms of of hydrogen in order to drive roughly 
I think 400 kilometers. And four four kilograms of hydrogen is quite a lot uh, by volume. So it's a roughly a 400 liter tank, I think you would need if it's not compressed. I have to look up the uh, correct number. So, but the, the volume is gigantic. So you need to compress it. And if you have porous structures, the gases will come out of the gas phase. You know, like one mole of uh, of an ideal gas has an expansion of 22.4 uh, liters at uh, zero degree uh, Celsius. And um, if you can store that in a solid phase by absorbing it, you will reduce that volume drastically, right? So you need just one mole of a material that can take up um, hydrogen, like magnesium, for example, can do that very well. It will form a magnesium hydride. And then you have a much smaller volume. You can store your one mole of hydrogen. But th the problem is that this material, for example, is too stable. So you 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 can get it connected, but you, you cannot release the hydrogen without going to uh, roughly 300 degrees centigrade. This is a... that, that's that's kind of a big problem. So yeah, you, have, yeah, a... you, you have your hydrogen, you take it with you, but you cannot use it because it's stored in the exactly. material. Yeah, okay. that, and that's why the um, yeah the porous materials they have much smaller hydrogen binding energy. So it's just fusiosorb. There's no chemical bond. It's just uh, surface interactions. Mm -hmm. And there you have the issue that it's for practical applications uh, stored um, uh, bound too weakly. So you need ah, to find kind of, yeah too weakly. So you have a, a problem called hydrogen boil off. So if you park your car, you fill it with your hydrogen at the future hydrogen station, your hydrogen will just dissolve from the surface and you will lose it overnight. Um, ah, okay, yeah. So, so it will just get released when you're not driving as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So you need some uh, some special pressure tanks for that. Those are being developed, and there are projects in the U.S. There, there was, for example, in the San Francisco Bay Area, there was a hydrogen ferry where hydrogen oh, was really? put in, in pressure tanks. So there are some pilot projects where people are trying to use hydrogen as a as a uh, energy carrier for vehicular transportation. But for the private sector, it's still an issue to store it in a way that the tank doesn't get too heavy, that you have enough uh, to drive three, 400 kilometers without yeah, having to worry where to fuel. And of course, there's not in Europe, we don't have an infrastructure for, for private uh, cars. Mm -hmm. You also have to consider you need to fuel in a reasonable time. People are, yeah. I mean, people are used to fill their car in like two, three minutes. Um, yeah, that's and, one and, of the big problems with electric yeah. cars as well, right? Exactly. This is why it's the same people who are complaining about the um, limited reach. They will also tell you that I don't want to wait for an hour or 30 minutes to quick charge my car to like 80% again. So, yeah, so this is something you have to deal with uh, when considering this. And I mean, also when you design materials for storing uh, these energy carriers. Based on your knowledge and your just your feelings about and not actually feelings, but on what you know about the topic, do you think like hydrogen is one of the energy carriers for the future, or do you think we will need to use something else? I think hydrogen will be a um, energy carrier of the future. I mean, if we find a way to produce it uh, cheaply, to produce it where it's needed, because I mean, you need a lot of energy when you produce the hydrogen. So you need to produce it somewhere where you have a, a energy source, like, I don't know uh, how to say Maybe water Maybe in power. a desert or with a lot yeah. of solar panels. Oh, yeah, yeah like for example, yeah. Yeah. or at a, yeah, at a water, um, how to say water reservoir, like a, mm. where you can yeah, use like a water truck. Um, 
Yeah, yeah, for example. Yeah. And then, of course, you need to you need to store the energy there, transport it uh, somewhere. So that's maybe like um, also an issue if you consider getting like a hydrogen grid. But I think it's a development that's just starting. I mean, if you think back, how long did it take that uh, electric cars are now so um, so popular? Right? Yeah, that's true. And you always have to keep the consumer in mind. Um, everybody switched now to to electric cars, um, made an investment, and then uh, we are building up a grid. Um, I think Germany is still a bit behind, um, but other European countries are, are doing much better. The US uh, is also doing much better. I think we will go with electric cars and the hydrogen probably will be uh, something that will start appearing later if we get the te technology to be cheap enough and to be market ready, I think. Yeah. So maybe electric cars will be the, the first step. Yeah. I mean, it's already very, it's a very transformative time now, I think. Uh, mm -hmm. Like if I would get a new car, I probably would also consider going mm -hmm. uh, electric. I mean, there's also the... Uh, support from the European Union, I think, when you buy um, a car in Germany, the fueling station will be covered uh, to some extent by the government. It's just a problem if you um, have to rely on street parking and don't have your own uh, <laughs> uh, parking spot, uh, so to say, where, where you can connect it. Yeah. While we're delving into the electric cars, uh, can your research also be used in storing electric energy? Um, or just the field? Is there some? So the, yeah, of course. The field is um, there. Are a lot of discoveries in terms of yeah different battery systems, different ion storage systems. So there's like classical lithium ion batteries, um, lithium sulfur batteries, um, sodium ion batteries. So you have always to consider lithium is a very f finite source um, on Earth. Um, I think it's like five or six percent uh, ppm, sorry, not percent ppm of the Earth's crust, and sodium is uh, much more abundant. For example, so commercial sodium ion batteries can make a big change. I think. Yeah, I also heard that like the batteries right now are the most expensive part of your mm -hmm. electric car. So yeah. if we can improve that, make that cheaper, and make it last longer, that will mm -hmm. be a huge boost for the industry. Yeah, I think so. I mean, uh, Tesla is also right now um, investing in Germany hugely. So they last year, they just opened a, a battery factory close to Berlin. Um, energy storage and batteries is in, generally in chemistry is a very big topic. Is that something you would like to collaborate in, in, those, in that field of creating actually new batteries? So I'm not an electrochemist, but I like to think about structures that can help there. So using the frameworks that I'm building uh, also as um, cathode or anode materials and, and batteries. But I need to rely there on, on collaboration partners, of course. So I can just think about structures that we can make or that are interesting to explore, prepare them in the, in the lab synthetically with my students, and then uh, reach out to um, yeah, the people that, can, that are actually good at it. So my mentor is doing quite a lot of work in, in battery research and we have a good collaboration uh, going on there. And so you're you're working on those covalent organic frameworks. Do you have some outputs or some interesting findings that are based on your work? So we have have now had our first publication um, of of my own lab. So, so I'm very ah, happy congratulations. about that. So what we are looking into. Uh, so part of my uh, lab is funded through a 
so-called collaborative research cluster. Um, so in Germany, the German Research Foundation, they have different programs and the collaborative research cluster is like a local funding program. So you are trying to collaborate with like 20, 25 groups in one university to work on a bigger topic. So the topic that we are working on is synthetic 2D materials. So the research cluster is called chemistry of synthetic 2D materials. And the framework structures that, that I just described, they are linked only in 2D, they are layered, and we are trying to exfoliate them into uh, nanosheets. And this uh, now, uh, we, we published our first paper on this and we can uh, tune the thickness of the sheets that we are creating by the um, functional groups on the backbone of the um, frameworks. So this is really so, exciting. So you're, yeah. Yeah. So you're create, creating those sheets and you can actually adjust the thickness based on the chemicals that you're using. Uh, based on the functional groups that are connected to the sheets. So the sheets, okay. they, are, they are layered when you prepare them. And mm -hmm. uh, through ultrasonication, we can uh, exfoliate them into stacks of um, yeah, roughly one, 1. 1.5 to 2 nanometers. So that's like oh. uh, four to five layers roughly. Yeah. Okay. So this is quite quite a nice. Of course, it would be cool to have only one layer. Um, one molecular yeah. layer would be like the end goal. Um, but yeah, this is like something we, um, we worked on and uh, successfully did. And then in my other topic, uh, we are working on yeah, new inorganic linkages between um, the organic moieties in, a co in covalent organic frameworks. And we made the first uh, boron sulfur linked uh, covalent organic framework. It's not published yet. Maybe someone else made it and also didn't publish yet, but um, uh, yeah, I'm um, self-confident enough to say we are the first uh, who made it. And it's a very fundamental research, you know? So I like to do fundamental things because if you closer get closer to application, there's a lot of people and I'm a very small guy. I have a small team. So if I want to compete with the biggest groups in, in, in the world, it's super easy to get scooped. If you have a good idea, Chances are someone else um, is also having it because most of the other scientists are not not stupid. They're usually very smart, highly creative people. And if there's an application involved, there will be there will be funding. And um, I have to be a bit careful there. Also in Germany, the research is um, research funding is very nice that you can also work on fundamental ideas to understand structures to to discover new materials that may not have an immediate use, but that may be interesting in, in a couple of years. So I can I can work in this little area and discover something and maybe useful, maybe something interesting for someone to pick up later and to work it into a um, yeah, useful application. Uh, but yeah, I like to do just chemistry in the lab and discover something uh, new and make something that no one else can make. Whether it's useful or not is... Uh, Different question, but we are gaining knowledge, so it's worth pursuing it. So that's, I mean, that's the goal of science is creating knowledge, right? So that's true. Yeah, because you are talking, you want, you have to create it like five molecule layers together and you want to get it into one molecule layer if possible. Yeah. But yeah. why is it just because of, because it's fun and because it's interesting and you learn new stuff or is, does it have a goal? Does it have an application? 
if you consider 2D materials, I think the most famous 2D material is graphene. Mm -hmm. So um, it's a single that's layer like a of... pencil, right? Uh, a carbon pencil? It's, oh, it's graphite. That's 3D. It's graphite, yeah. Uh, so graphite is a 2D layered structure consisting of the graphene layers. So Okay. And I mean, there were some very interesting findings because you completely change the band structure. So the distance between the conduction and valence band. And um, for physicists, those are really interesting because you get uh, yeah, superconductors. So materials have uh, at the nanoscale, they have completely different properties than in, in the bulk scale. So if you make a single layer of graphene, so exfoliate your graphite, you get completely different uh, properties. And in our case, like if we go back to energy storage or to gas uh, separations, if you have a, a membrane that can distinguish between two molecules, for example, and it's a, ideally a single atomic layer thick, the diffusion barriers will be much uh, lower. So you can uh, do your separations more efficient. If you cast it into like a membrane with a support, you have a much better um, distribution of the layers. Like imagine you have one big stack, you try to put it into a support, it will be only in one spot. If you if you like 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 a deck of cards, um, you are increasing your outer surface area and um, you can distribute the sheets much better into a membrane with a second material, for example, with a support material or on top of a, some, some holy material, like you have a material, uh, a support, that has uh, holes, but which are, it's not so easy to make nanometer sized holes into a large uh, wafer. But if you uh, have 100 nanometer, 50 nanometer uh, pores in, in a large bulk material, you can cover them with your sheets and then uh, you, you separate your two molecules through the sheets that are on top of the support. Yeah, so you're actually creating membranes to separate one molecule from another. Yeah, is this is this yeah. is what we are trying now. So this is now the follow-up work to like the finding. We can we can make these uh, layers super thin. Now we are trying to distribute it on on surfaces. Um, we were able to show already that for ion diffusion, we we can alter some um, some membranes and have a higher diffusion of ions compared to the bulk uh, framework when we put it in. It's also for energy storage applications. If you have much thinner materials, the ions can diffuse much quicker to the storage sites. So this can, for example, have a, an effect on the charging uh, speed. The redox reaction that happens in your battery is then the rate determining step and not the um, the diffusion of the ions through, through the bulk of the structure. Like if you imagine you have like a structure, a huge structure and the ion needs to diffuse all through it to go somewhere in the middle of it. Or if you have a lot of tiny sheets and the ions can just readily go through the reaction sites, do the redox reaction, get stored. So, and redox, that's reduction and oxidation reaction. Yep. So yeah, there's exactly. an electron being transferred. And so you're actually saying that the redox reaction can go as fast as it can. Because if you have that really thin layer, the uh, chemicals are actually transported as fast as possible, or the electrons. Yeah, you have to think in this way that if ions go somewhere, they, they have to pass through, um, they have to diffuse uh, through the bulk of the structure. There's interparticle uh, diffusion. There's a lot um, a lot more processes that are happening. And if you just like 
get the materials as thin as possible, you have um, yeah quicker iron storage. Yeah. And also you said so these membranes to are used to separate materials. Uh, a while back we had an episode on desalination of seawater. So we put seawater at one side and uh, and a membrane. And when there's a pressure applied, the water gets pushed through, but the ions mm -hmm. don't get through. Is that so, something that you're looking at? So is it called water osmosis or something like, I think? Yeah, I, I think I, it's a uh, reverse osmosis. Reverse osmosis. Yeah, I've seen, I've seen people do that. Like if you have nano channels, so have the right uh, functional groups like that, that repel the ions, but let the water through, then uh, I, I think this is something, there's also an, uh, something that is actively followed. I think even here in TU Dresden with, from another group. Maybe also like just in um, cleaning gray water from, from, or just water from usage from homes, it needs to be cleaned. Can those membranes be used there as well? Yeah, I think so. Um, I mean, uh, there's also a lot of research, for example, on oil uh, spillage cleanup and capturing toxic molecules, uh, be it um, heavy metals, for example, from wastewater or, I mean, pharmaceuticals that that you can find in wastewater. And if you adjust your pore size or the functional groups, they, you, you can... Um, yeah, you can do some molecular sieving, and this is a very, very big research field. As you know, I'm a plant ecophysiologist. I I love plants, and I yeah, it mm. just it grows, and I love how they work. Mm. What what is your driver for your research? Because for me, it's an alien topic. It's like I I I get I got some insights from you, but what is mm. your drive? Why do you find it so interesting? I like uh, I like symmetry, so I like looking at regular structures, and I uh, so my challenge or what drives me is to uh, synthesize the structures that no one has tried yet and uh, no one else can make yet. This is right now my my biggest driving force. Um, so just yeah, to... you, you look a bit like an artist that is creating some new. <laughs> Chemical yeah. structure in 2D that no one has created before. Yeah, or yeah, like like a more kind of like a molecular architect, like to choose the building yeah. blocks to build the framework. Thinking, okay, if I put in building block A and B, how will they work together? What kind of structure will it form? And then ultimately, if we can make it, what will it be useful for? I mean, sometimes yeah. we also think, okay, this is a moiety that has been used in a different field for application A, B, C. And then we think, okay, can we get it into the structure um, as a as a yeah as a building motive, and can then can it then be used uh, by some collaboration partners? I will completely have to change my introduction now. It's like we have a chemical artist. That's not really a problem. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's a bit overselling it, but yeah, um, I'm I'm at the end of the day, I'm I'm a, a synthetic chemist um, who likes to do chemical reactions and see if we can use them to um yeah to build 2D or 3D structures are also interesting but yeah in in, in the field of covalent organic frameworks actually the 3D structures are a bit more difficult to make because you mostly use uh, highly symmetric planar building blocks but it's also something that a lot of people are looking into so you might be working towards 3D 3D sorry in the future well, uh, the, the boron sulfur structure I talked about earlier is actually a 3D structure. 
We, ah, okay. we, we, yeah. we didn't plan to make it a 3D uh, structure. Um, it turned out, and I hope hopefully we can submit it uh, this year um, yeah. and show it to people. Yeah. I'm sure you will. You already have a lot of really high impact papers, so you'll be able to manage that. Now, those actually, like you said, you like this the symmetry in 2D. Is that something mm -hmm. that you have always liked? Like as a kid, were you drawn to symmetry and were you drawn to science and stuff like that? Or is it something that came later on? It's a good question. Uh, I think that came later on because I, so in high school, I really liked the chemistry uh, class. I And I had a really good teacher and uh, actually um, it was one of one of the inspirations why I started chemistry was a good high school teacher. She was uh, also very supportive. And um, then it was also, on the other hand, was my best subject um, in, in school. So that was a kind of easy pick. Uh, it, it might also be your best subject because you had a good teacher. Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yeah, I mean, this is important. Uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that's right. And then... Um, I was a rather mediocre student uh, in the other things, I would say. So this was kind of like a, a no-brainer. Uh, um, so I was first thinking um, of like just just becoming like a lab scientist, not going to university. But my my uh, parents said, please go to university. And um, then, I mean, I uh, grew up very close to the university, actually, where I did my PhD. I think in Belgium is maybe very similar that you don't, I mean, Belgium is not such a large country as Germany, but many people, they stay um, for their undergrad and grad school quite close to home. So I started studying in, in uh, Bochum University, so on the west side of Germany at the Ruhr University, Bochum, did my undergrad there. I first was working there in industrial chemistry, actually. That's a big shift, no? Yeah, it's quite a big shift. So it, I was working on titanium nanoparticles decorated with gold um, as, as CO reduction catalyst. That was my bachelor thesis. But that sounds I, like a really fancy topic. You you would convince yeah. a lot of people. That's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, CO reduction is, I mean, you basically, you're turning CO into CO2. So these transformations are important for different oh, you're things. You're actually creating CO2. Yeah, I mean, CO is very toxic for humans, right? Yeah, you have yeah. to consider that. And if you want to get rid of it, you need some very active uh, catalysts. Um, CO2 is not so toxic. Um, I mean, of course, it's not oxygen, but yeah. Yeah, we have too much of it, but we breathe out CO2, so it cannot be that bad. Yeah, and CO is so toxic because it, it binds to the iron in the hemoglobin, and mm, then yeah. it blocks the oxygen sites, and it can also block catalyst sites in, in, in industry. So you probably want to get rid of that as well by turning it over to CO2. I enjoyed working there, but actually I wanted to go to organic chemistry in my, in my master's, and... When I started my master's, I did uh, um, an Erasmus uh, project. Also something I can re recommend to everybody, do an Erasmus uh, a year during your studies, get out of your comfort zone, go to another country in Europe. It's very easy. You have the Erasmus. In my case, in the chemistry department, barely anyone wanted to do it. So I could choose between different places even. And I was in Cardiff in, uh, in in Wales, in the United Kingdom for six months. And there uh, I wanted to do organic chemistry, but the places were already taken. So I went to the coordination chemistry lab and did ligand synthesis, small organic molecules to uh, coordinate to, to metal centers. 
And then when I returned to, to my home university afterwards, I, um, yeah, I wanted to continue on that. And there some, somehow I ended up in the framework chemistry. So there I got kind of hooked on this, uh, network building, uh, idea. Okay. Yeah. So that's really something that grew while you were studying. Yeah, exactly. I think also it's always important to look left and right. What are other people doing? What interests you the most? Also don't go necessarily there where you have the best job opportunities, uh, because if it doesn't interest you and you then follow a research field, uh, work in a research field where you get a sure job, but you don't like it, then I mean, how high are the chances you will not like the job you are working on in the end? So go something, do something that interests you. Then you will also find a job, I think, in chemistry. Feels almost like they call message already. Yeah, but... kind, of. <laughs> kind of. We're yeah, a bit early, of. but yeah. I, I also want to emphasize something that I've heard a few times and I think that's really important, like you said as well. A teacher can make so much difference. If you have a good teacher in a certain subject that can actually change your career path for life. So that, that's such a big influence. So shout out to the teachers. <laughs> Yeah, teachers and also mentors. If you have a good PhD mentor who is supportive, and also I had a very good uh, postdoctoral mentor in, in the US, and also now in, in my habilitation, I have a very good mentor. So I've had uh, great mentors all the way. Um, this is really, really helpful um, also because you are doing this, uh, most of the things you are doing, you are doing the first time then. Um, nobody does like five PhDs. You cannot know everything, of course. Also very important to have friends in your research group or at the university, because I mean, no matter what you do in science, you, you don't know really if it will work or not. I mean, that's why you're doing it. So I think it's always good also this, to discuss negative results. Um, Chances are someone in, in your lab might know why something isn't working the way uh, it is described in a, in the literature or in, in some notes or something. Based on your current trajectory, I assume you want to stay in, in academia. Um, but what is it that you like so much about academia? I like being free and doing, uh, doing whatever I like. Uh, so, I mean, I set my research topic myself. Of course, there are... I mean, there are certain boundaries that needs to yield results because I have to do a report at some point. I like to read papers and see what other groups are doing. There's a lot of great research going on and getting inspired from that, um, going to conferences. There's a lot of yeah, great other scientists. I like meeting on a regular basis. Um, teaching is also something I do quite a lot. So I enjoy that as well. Um, it's a lot of components and I'm not sure if I would necessarily do quite well in a, in a company environment in the university, you are making something that is making knowledge and that is educating people. And for educating people, you can use any kind of chemistry you want. Imagine you were not a scientist. Do you know what you would be? I like cooking and baking. So maybe I would, I would bake cakes or something. Maybe just a normal office job could also be interesting. Then you can focus more on your, uh, your free time and your private life. But then you would have the, the rigid structure that you don't like. Yeah, that much. yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's a, that's a problem. Then I cannot work on my computer until, uh, one in the night and come late to work in the next day. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You have a huge flexibility, right? If you have, if you're in the drive, then you just keep working and then yeah, you exactly, just start yeah. late the next day. It doesn't matter as long as your yeah. work is done. 
Yeah, exactly. That's the thing. Uh, also, of course, it's a big topic like uh, um, psychological health of people that are like burning out, working too much, particularly at universities. It's a big issue because if if you're not in a, in, a, in, a, in a professorship, you don't have a safe job, so to say. Yeah, And this can be a burden for many people. And then they mm -hmm. don't watch out for themselves and um, prioritize uh, the work over the mental and uh, bodily health. So I'm, I'm pretty happy that for us, barely no one comes in on the weekend, which is good. You need to rest also um, so to, to shut down for a bit. Some people also have like these small signatures in their emails, which I like, and that's, they're just saying like, I don't expect you to answer in weekends or on holidays. Of course. But I think that's really nice because it's also like communicating to someone else, like it's fine mm. if you don't reply in your weekends. And yeah, I think yeah. that's important because even if you want to work in your weekends, that's fine, but don't expect someone else to do that. And that's, I think it's really nice that some people just add that small, maybe I should add that mm. myself. <laughs> Before we close, do you have a take home message for our listeners? What do you say? Uh, hit the subscribe button, um, <laughs> uh, hit the notification bell, uh, follow uh, Jörn's uh, podcast. Uh, We need uh, more science in uh, Spotify, more science in uh, YouTube. Look into the um, episode of Ruben van der Fiver, who is uh, <laughs> a yeah. common friend. Uh, uh, he was my postdoc uh, friend, uh, even though we are from very different fields. We met in California. And I think also, yeah, one of the things why I like uh, science so much is I met a lot of great people um, through it. You work with a lot of um, people that have the same energy as you. Um, and you create something new and yeah, teamwork is very important, uh, particularly in, in these days where studies are becoming more and more complex. You cannot do everything by yourself, make, make friends, find friends that, that are complementary to your interests and, uh, and do something fun together in the lab and, uh, yeah, push, uh, push the boundaries of science. Yeah. Yeah. It's always nicer and also it result of gives better results when you do something with friends yeah exactly this was the 18th episode of apple finch pudding i want to thank andrea schneemann for the information let's meet again for the next episode of apple finch pudding mm -hmm.